Appendix three of the Expedition of the Donner Party and its Tragic Fate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Expedition of the Donner Party and its Tragic Fate by Eliza P. Donner Houghton. Appendix three. The Report of Thomas Fallon. Deductions, Statement of Edwin Bryant, Peculiar Circumstances. The following is the report of Thomas Fallon, leader of the fourth party to the camps near Donner Lake. Quote, Left Johnson's on the evening of April 13, and arrived at the lower end of Bear River Valley on the 15th. Hung our saddles upon trees, and sent the horses back to be returned again in ten days to bring us in again started on foot with provisions for ten days, and travelled to head of the valley, and camped for the night. Snow from two to three feet deep. Started early in the morning of April 15th, and travelled twenty-three miles. Snow ten feet deep. April 17. Reached the cabins between twelve and one o'clock. Expected to find some of the sufferers alive, Mrs. Donner and Keysburg in particular entered the cabins, and a horrible scene presented itself. Human bodies terribly mutilated, legs, arms, and skulls scattered in every direction. One body, supposed to be that of Mrs. Eddy, lay near the entrance, the limbs severed off, and a frightful gash in the skull. The flesh was nearly consumed from the bones, and a painful stillness pervaded the place. The supposition was that all were dead, when a sudden shout revived our hopes, and we flew in the direction of the sound. Three Indians, who had been hitherto concealed, started from the ground, fled at our approach, leaving behind their bows and arrows. We delayed two hours in searching the cabins, during which we were obliged to witness sights from which we would have fain turned away, and which are too dreadful to put on record. We next started for Donner's camp, eight miles distant over the mountains. After traveling about halfway, we came upon a track in the snow which excited our suspicion, and we determined to pursue. It brought us to the camp of Jacob Donner, where it had evidently left that morning. There we found property of every description—books, calicoes, tea, coffee, shoes, percussion caps, household and kitchen furniture—scattered in every direction, and mostly in water. At the mouth of the tent stood a large iron kettle, filled with human flesh cut up. It was from the body of George Donner. The head had been split open, and the brain extracted therefrom, and to the appearance he had not been long dead, not over three or four days at most. Nearby the kettle stood a chair, and thereupon three legs of a bullock that had been shot down in the early part of winter, and snowed upon before it could be dressed. The meat was found sound and good, and with the exception of a small piece out of the shoulder, whole, untouched. We gathered up some property and camped for the night. April 18. Commenced gathering the most valuable property, suitable for our packs. The greater portion had to be dried. We then made them up and camped for the night. April 19. This morning Foster, Rhodes, and J. Foster started with small packs for the first cabins, intending from thence to follow the trail of the person that had left the morning previous. The other three remained behind to cache and secure the goods necessarily left there. 
Knowing the Donners had a considerable sum of money, we searched diligently, but were unsuccessful. The party for the cabins were unable to keep the trail of the mysterious personage, owing to the rapid melting of the snow. They therefore went directly to the cabins, and upon entering discovered Keysburg lying down amid the human bones, and beside him a large pan full of fresh liver and lights. They asked him what had become of his companions, whether they were alive, and what had become of Mrs. Donner. He answered them by stating that they were all dead. Mrs. Donner, he said, had, in attempting to cross from one cabin to another, missed the trail, and slept out one night, that she came to his camp the next night very much fatigued. He made her a cup of coffee, placed her in bed, and rolled her well in the blankets. But next morning she was dead." He ate her body and found her flesh the best he had ever tasted. He further stated that he obtained from her body at least four pounds of fat. No trace of her body was found, nor of the body of Mrs. Murphy either. When the last company left the camp three weeks previous, Mrs. Donner was in perfect health, though unwilling to leave her husband there, and offered five hundred dollars to any person or persons who would come out and bring them in saying this in the presence of Keysburg, and that she had plenty of tea and coffee. We suspected that it was she who had taken the piece from the shoulder of beef on the chair before mentioned. In the cabin with Keysburg were found two kettles of human blood in all, supposed to be over two gallons. Rhodes asked him where he had got the blood. He answered, There is blood in dead bodies. They asked him numerous questions, but he appeared embarrassed, and equivocated a great deal, and in reply to their asking him where Mrs. Donner's money was, he evinced confusion, and answered that he knew nothing about it, that she must have cashed it before she died. "'I haven't it,' said he, "'nor money nor property of any person, living or dead.' They then examined his bundle, and found silks and jewelry, which had been taken from the camp of Donner's, amounting in value to about two hundred dollars." On his person they discovered a brace of pistols, recognized to be those of George Donner, and while taking them from him discovered something concealed in his waistcoat, which on being opened was found to be $225 in gold. Before leaving the settlement, the wife of Keysburg had told us that we would find but little money about him. The men, therefore, said to him that they knew he was lying to them, and that he was well aware of the place of concealment of the Donner's money. He declared before heaven he knew nothing concerning it, and that he had not the property of any one in his possession. They told him that to lie to them would affect nothing, that there were others back at the cabins who, unless informed of the spot where the treasure was hidden, would not hesitate to hang him upon the first tree. Their threats were of no avail. He still affirmed his ignorance and innocence. Rhodes took him aside and talked to him kindly, telling him that if he would give the information desired, he should receive from their hands the best of treatment, and be in every way assisted. Otherwise the party back at Donner's camp would, upon arrival, and his refusal to discover to them the place where he had deposited this money, immediately put him to death. It was all to no purpose, however, and they prepared to return to us, leaving him in charge of the packs, and assuring him of their determination to visit him in the morning, and that he must make up his mind during the night. They started back and joined us at Donner's camp. April 20. We all started for Bear River Valley, with packs of one hundred pounds each. 
Our provisions being nearly consumed, we were obliged to make haste away, came within a few hundred yards of the cabins, and halted to prepare breakfast, after which we proceeded to the cabin. I now asked Keysburg if he was willing to disclose to me where he had concealed that money. He turned somewhat pale and again protested his innocence. I said to him, "'Keysburg, you know well where Donner's money is, and damn you, you shall tell me. I am not going to multiply words with you or say but little about it. Bring me that rope.' He then arose from his hot soup and human flesh, and begged me not to harm him. He had not the money nor goods, the silk clothing and money which were found upon him the previous day, and which he then declared belonged to his wife, he now said were the property of others in California. I told him I did not wish to hear more from him, unless he at once informed us where he had concealed the money of those orphan children. Then, producing the rope, I approached him. He became frightened, but I bent the rope around his neck, and as I tightened the cord and choked him, he cried out that he would confess all upon release. I then permitted him to arise. He still seemed inclined to be obstinate, and made much delay in talking. Finally, but without evident reluctance, he led the way back to Donner's camp, about ten miles distant, accompanied by Rhodes and Tucker. While they were absent, we moved all our packs over the lower end of the lake, and made all ready for a start when they should return. Mr. Foster went down to the cabin of Mrs. Murphy, his mother-in-law, to see if any property remained there worth collecting and securing. He found the body of young Murphy, who had been dead about three months, with his breast and skull cut open, and the brains, liver, and lights taken out and this accounted for the contents of the pan which stood beside Keysburg when he was found. It appeared that he had left at the other camp the dead bullock and horse, and on visiting this camp and finding the body thawed out, took therefrom the brains, liver, and lights. Tucker and Rhodes came back the next morning, bringing $273 that had been cashed by Keysburg, who, after disclosing to them the spot, returned to the cabin. The money had been hidden directly underneath the projecting limb of a large tree, the end of which seemed to point precisely to the treasure buried in the earth. On their return and passing the cabin, they saw the unfortunate man within devouring the remaining brains and liver left from his morning repast. They hurried him away, but before leaving he gathered together the bones and heaped them all in a box he used for the purpose, blessed them and the cabin, and said, I hope God will forgive me what I have done. I could not help it, and I hope I may get to heaven yet. We asked Keysburg why he did not use the meat of the bullock and horse instead of human flesh. He replied he had not seen them. We then told him we knew better, and asked him why the meat on the chair had not been consumed. He said, Oh, it is too dry eating. The liver and lights were a great deal better, and brains made good soup. We then moved on and camped by the lake for the night. April 21. Started for Bear River Valley this morning. Found the snow from six to eight feet deep. Camped at Yuma River for the night. On the 22nd, traveled down Yuma about 18 miles and camped at the head of Bear River Valley. On the 25th, moved down to lower end of the valley, met our horses, and came in. End quote. The account by Fallon regarding the fate of the last of the Donners in their mountain camp was the same as that which Elitha and Liana had heard and had endeavored to keep from us little ones at Sutter's Fort. 
It is self-evident, however, that the author of these statements did not contemplate that reliable parties would see the Donner camps before prowling beasts or time and elements had destroyed all proof of his own and his party's wanton falsity. It is also plain that the Fallon party did not set out expecting to find anyone alive in the mountains. Otherwise, would it not have taken more provisions than just enough to sustain its own men ten days? Would it not have ordered more horses to meet it at the lower end of Bear Valley for the return trip? Had it planned to find and succor survivors, would it have taken it for granted that all had perished, simply because there was no one in the lake cabins, and would it have delayed two precious hours in searching the lake camp for valuables before proceeding to Donner's camp? Had the desire to rescue been uppermost in mind, would not the sight of human foot-tracks on the snow, halfway between the two camps, have excited hope instead of suspicion, and prompted some of the party to pursue the lone wanderer with kindly intent? Does not each succeeding day's entry in that journal disclose the party's forgetfulness of its declared mission to the mountains? Can any palliating excuse be urged why those men did not share with Keysburg the food they had brought, instead of permitting him to continue that which famine had forced upon him, and which later they so righteously condemned? Is there a single strain of humanity, pathos, or reverence in that diary, save that reflected from Keysburg's last act before being hurried away from that desolate cabin? Or could there be a falser, crueler, or more heartless account brought to bereaved children than Fallon's purported description of the father's body found in Donner's camp. Here is the statement of Edwin Bryant, who with General Kearney and escort en route to the United States, halted at the deserted cabins on June 22, 1847, and wrote, quote, The body of Captain George Donner was found in his own camp about eight miles distant. He had been carefully laid out by his wife, and a sheet was wrapped around the corpse. This sad office was probably the last act she performed before visiting the camp of Keysburg. After considering what had been published by the California Star, by Bryant, Thornton, Mrs. Farnham, and others, I could not but realize Keysburg's peculiarly helpless situation. Without a chance to speak in his own defense, he had been charged tried and adjudged guilty by his accusers, and an excited people had accepted the verdict without question. Later, at Captain Sutter's suggestion, Keysburg brought action for slander against Captain Fallon and party. The case was tried before Alcalde Sinclair, and the jury gave Keysburg a verdict of one dollar damages. This verdict, however, was not given wide circulation, and prejudice remained unchecked. There were other peculiar circumstances connected with this much-accused man which were worthy of consideration, notably the following. If, as reported, Keysburg was in condition to walk to the settlement, why did the first relief permit him to remain in camp consuming rations that might have saved others? Messrs. Reed and McCutcheon of the second relief knew the man on the plains, and had they regarded him as able to travel, or a menace to life in camp, would they have left him there to prey on women and little children, like a wolf in the fold? Messrs. Eddy and Foster of the Third Relief had travelled with him on the plains, starved with him in camp, and had had opportunities of talking with him upon their return to the cabins too late to rescue Jimmy Eddy and Georgia Foster. 
had they believed that he had murdered the children, would those two fathers and the rest of their party have taken Simon Murphy and the three little Donner girls, and left Keysburg alive in camp, with lone, sick, and helpless Mrs. Murphy, Mrs. Murphy, who was grandmother of Georgia Foster, and had sole charge of Jimmy Eddy. End of Appendix 3